This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. This time on the Out of Water Podcast, we present an adaptation of a message delivered by Pastor Sam Kastensmith at the monthly men's breakfast held at our church. In our world, there are typically two ways that people respond to religion. Some come to religion under the burden of guilt, believing that they need to be good enough before they can be valued. Others come to religion and shudder at its standards, believing that any love worth having means that they should never feel the weight of shame or rejection. In the gospel, Jesus comes to both sides and says, no, the good news of his love is far greater than either side could imagine. In Christ, we find our great transformation from sinner to saint, and we find our only sure hope for an everlasting future free from shame. All right, good morning. How is everybody this morning? Awesome. Thanks for coming. On Wednesday nights, I I do a class that's on spiritual disciplines, and in this week's class... It's on law and grace and evangelism and stuff like that. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about a change in culture and something that you see when you stop for a moment and you start thinking about it. You're like, yeah, the culture really has done that. But I was thinking about evangelism and everybody who teaches evangelism, which is just a bizarre thing in our culture these days. They, they did a poll with Barna that found among self-identified Christians, 47% per- percent of millennial Christians believe that it's wrong to evangelize. Why do you think people have a hard time with evangelism? Pretty simply, it's to impose your views on somebody else is really, really awkward. And so there's been this transition over the last 40 or 50 years, and hang with me on the history lesson real quick, but over the last 40 or 50 years, how we evangelized has changed dramatically. What's effective, what people will listen to. When you start talking to them about Jesus, there are certain things that used to work that now just people just shut down. They don't want to hear it. They have no, they have no patience for it. So for example, long, long time ago, the pastor who used to pastor the church seven miles north of here came up with evangelism explosion. And you know how evangelism explosion started. It started with two questions. And so the first question was, If you were to die today, and and I'm butchering the question, but it's something like this. If you were to die today and stand before God, you know, do you feel that you would go into heaven? Would you feel confident that you would go into heaven? And then the second question is, well, what would you say if God said, why should I let you into my heaven? Like, on what basis are you worthy of coming into heaven? And nowadays... Our culture doesn't fear God. Like, we don't sit around going, I wonder if I'm going to be worthy of God. And I'm, I'm trembling, wondering if I'm going to be worthy of God and, and, and heaven and hell and all these questions. And, and that used to work. In the 1970s, 1980s, people had this understanding that something's wrong. Something's wrong in here. Something, I feel like it, there's a separation between me and God. And so that idea of the gospel coming and solving that problem was, it worked. People wanted to hear good news that Christ makes it possible to have a relationship with God and to go to heaven. 
Still works in much of the world, but in America, you know what the question is now? What keeps me up at night now is I don't know what the purpose of life is. I don't feel peace anymore. I, I feel like I'm walking around with this sense of angst and depression and loneliness and all this internal struggle. I, you know, heaven, hell, all that stuff, you know, put that aside. I need something to remedy that. I'm walking around right now with this huge weight on my soul and it's debilitating and I feel like a failure and I'm ashamed and I'm alone. Can you help me find peace now? And that's what people are longing for. And so what happened in the 1980s is everybody knew that that was coming along. All the sociologists looked at that and they say, saw people who were going around saying, I'm alone, I feel miserable, I need something to help me. And the self-esteem movement was born. And so what we began doing, and Stuart Smalley in the 1980s and Saturday Night Live started making fun of this. Do you know Stuart Smalley? Al Franken standing in front of the mirror saying, I'm good enough, I'm beautiful enough, and doggone it, people like me, you know. That was born, and we started teaching our kids that you're good enough, and no matter what you choose, you're wonderful. And, and we started building in the self-esteem, and what they're now finding is the self-esteem movements become destructive. Because when people think too highly of themselves, they're way more likely to become racist, because I'm the best, and everyone should be like me. And they are sexist, and they cannot stand when people disagree with them, and so our political climate's falling apart because not everybody's like me, as wonderful and amazing as I am. And behind it, here's the deal. You have two really, really big problems that society has tried to solve two different ways. The first one says, I've got a problem, and I feel like I'm out out of balance with the, the maker of the universe. I feel like something's wrong with me. I, I need peace. I need, I need to be accepted by him. And then the second one, where we are now, is I feel alone. I feel like there's nobody that can relate to me. And I want to show you this, this history, the shift through the lens of Disney movies. All right? If you go back in the day, all of the Disney movies had this really no, noble, heroic, you were going to be saved or transformed or rescued from what you were. Pinocchio, right? He's the, he's the wooden doll that just longs to be the boy and you get a happy ending. What happens? Pinocchio goes from being the wooden doll to the boy. He, it's this great transformation. He becomes worthy of affection, right? Or... You look at Snow White. I was, <laughs> I was reading a, a review of Snow White, and the, the first one that I came to was lifting up Snow White as a, as a picture for the Me Too movement, because before the guy kissed her, he didn't get consent, and I was like, oh, jeez. <laughs> but anyway, here you have like this transformation, the sleep of death, and the great heroic prince comes and is going to kiss her and bring her back to life, and... It's this redemption, restoration, or, or beauty and the beast, right? The happy ending of beauty and the beast is what? He's killed and he comes back to life. And what does he look like when he comes back to life? He's made in the image of God. It's this beautiful man. Everything is restored, rescued from this ugliness, and it's beautiful. And, and by the way, the desire to be transformed and rescued is in all of us. 
It's a good desire. It's natural. It's written on your heart. You have it in you. You want to be rescued. You realize something's wrong. You realize you're not who you're supposed to be. All of us do. And so we want to be transformed and rescued. So then fast forward to modern day Disney. And by the way, these are desires that we all have and that are natural. They just <laughs> manifest themselves in weird ways. So Aladdin, what's, what's the whole story of Aladdin? It's, it's a princess who has absolutely everything. And she feels insecure and shamed and like she, nobody knows her. And she needs to be different in order to be known. And then you've got the pauper, Aladdin, who's, who's like the, the street urchin. And what's his deal? Nobody knows me. I'm ashamed. If only I could be rich, then... And so they're both ashamed of who they are. And kind of the moral of the story is... Be who you are. There's no need to be ashamed. Or you get to Frozen and Elsa, who, right, she goes off and our kids all sing the song, let it, let it, let it go. If you're a parent, you hate that song, right? But it's, it's, hey, you know what? I am who I am and I'm just going to go off and I'm going to be who I'm going to be and just deal with it, world. And everybody should accept me as I am. Or you look at Shrek. Like, you think of Shrek. Shrek is the is kind of like Pinocchio in, in some sense, right? You have this ogre nobody likes who's out in the swamp, and what, what happens? Everybody's terrified of him, but the happy ending in Shrek is what? He's not transformed into the, the man. In fact, the beautiful princess is transformed into the ogre, and everybody just needs to deal with us as we are. You look at any Disney movies, and it goes from like the outcast right? That's, that's the story today, the outcast. And what they're saying is, I should not have to be ashamed of who I am. And so therefore, everybody should just accept me as I am. I shouldn't have to change. This is now the anthem of this generation. I should never have to change. You should accept me for exactly who I am right now. If you loved me, you would let me be who I am in any way of my life. Good message, right? but we all know that's a lie, don't we? Aren't there things that you walk around with that you're ashamed of, the way that you live, the way that you treat your wife, the way that you parent, the way that you engage in business? There are things in your life that if everybody else knew, you'd go, ooh. And so here's, here's the idea. Like you lift up these two hopes. Maybe somebody can come and transform me and rescue me. That's a God-given desire. And maybe someday, being me won't come with so much shame. That's also the God-given desire. Still to this day, these two extremes exist when it comes to how we view ultimate things. There's one who comes with the law and says, you fall so far short and it's crushing and we, we just, under the weight of the law, we're like, somebody save us, somebody rescue us, right? There's that longing, And then over here, there's this longing that I just want to be accepted for who I am. I just, I want to be known. I want to be loved. I want, I want all of those things to come with me, to me, right? And that's a good thing. But where we err is saying, you know what? I'm good exactly how I am and I don't need rescuing and the world just needs to love me as I am. That doesn't work because you know who your worst and most critical judges, you are. You'll never get away from it. 
You'll never, you'll never get over it. This morning, my wife just got a brand new minivan. My son came into the room. Your, your ego is constantly fighting to be the best, always. You know it inside of you. We just bought my mama, my mom, my wife, an, a new car, his mom. My son comes into the bedroom and says, and I'm not, I don't even like my car, but my son comes into our bedroom this morning and says, I like mom's car way better than yours. I don't even like my car. You know what I said? Oh, yeah, guess who paid for mom's car? <laughs> and a moment he walked out of the room, I'm going, my ego cannot handle an 11-year-old child telling me he likes mom's car better. I, I remember graduating from seminary, and when I graduated, they give this award for preaching, and someone else got it. And here I am graduating from seminary. Someone else gets the award, and I'm thinking in my mind, he sucks. Like, I should have won that award. Like, ridiculous. Your ego will never let you rest. The moment you get something and you delight in it, you delight in it until you realize someone else has gotten something better, right? In college, when you got a really pretty girlfriend, you were really excited about her until one of your other friends showed up with like the supermodel type. And then you're like, oh, Or maybe that was just not me. (laughs) But anyway, our ego is constantly after us. We judge ourselves like crazy. I want to read to you this quote from Madonna, the the sage of our time. But this is really brilliant. I'm going to say this is really brilliant. She says this in an interview with Vogue. She says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. What is she saying there? I want people to approve of me. I want, I want them to say you're the best. You're valuable. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mo- mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. That's why she's always trying to top herself. It's why all these people in pop culture are always trying to top themselves, to do the next most amazing thing. Why? It's coming from insecurity. They're judging themselves with a viciousness that you can't even imagine. We know that, right? We do that too. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle will never, my struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. We don't want the world to judge us. We're we're tired of our own opinion judging us. We're we're just, we can't get away from it. We never measure up in this room as a bunch of people who think, I'm not good enough as, as a dad. I'm not good enough as a husband. I feel like a failure. I'm not doing enough to live up in the workplace. Or maybe I don't, I don't have somebody, and maybe that means I'm not good enough. Maybe there's something wrong with you. Never stop accusing yourself. Or, here's something Arthur Murray, who was a playwright who wrote Death of a Salesman. He married um, Marilyn Monroe. Thank you. This is what he says. I think this is just brilliant. He says, he writes this in a play called After the Fall. There he is with Marilyn. You look at him and you're like, I, 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 really? See, there's my ego again. That's terrible. He says, you know, more and more... I think that for many years, I looked at life like a case at law. Everyone in here does this. 
like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you, you, you want to prove how brave you are or how smart, and then that you're what a good lover, and then a good father, and finally how wise or powerful or what the hell ever. And he goes on and he says this, but underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation. I knew something was judging me. I was waiting for some verdict, right? Where God knows what, I would be justified or, or even condemned, a verdict anyway. And I think now that my disaster, so he's had this midlife crisis and he's writing through this character, Quentin, in this play. He says, I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight, and all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. You know, he wrote this play after he got divorced from Marilyn Monroe. So he gets married to Marilyn Monroe, and what is the ego saying on that day? Look at me, world. Look who I've got. Look at my arm candy. Look who I'm with. And by all accounts, the moment that they got married, both of them were interested. She wanted him because he was an intellect. He wanted her because she was a beauty. They, and they are, that's, you know, their egos are just going crazy when they marry each other. And then right as soon as they get married, the thrill is over, and the, the marriage just collapsed. It couldn't feed the ego anymore. There's constant, I need more, I need more, I need more. This doesn't satisfy, I'm on to the next thing, I need something else. Nothing satisfies this massive ego, this judge that lives inside of me. Nothing's doing it, forget the world. This is the worst judge I've got, right? And so Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians chapter four, and he's writing to a church that's a train wreck, (laughs) squabbles and pride and arrogance and all this stuff. And he says this to believers. And I want you to catch what's in this because it's profound, guys. This then is how you ought to regard us. He's talking to the Corinthian church about himself and, and his fellow ministers. As servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, listen to this. It is required that those who have been given a trust, those who receive this faith, those who walk around and say, I'm a Christian, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So immediately, what does that do? Don't read the rest of it yet, but you must prove faithful. Immediately, I'm going, there's no way. Like, you're just giving me more ammunition. It's why people don't want religion. You're just giving me more ammunition for me to judge myself with. I'm never gonna measure up to what Jesus says. I'm a train wreck. I'm a mess. I don't want more rules. I don't want more regulations. It's just going to make this go even more wild with saying you're not good enough. You failed there too. Oh yeah, nice move, dad. It's just going to accuse and accuse. But Paul doesn't walk away from it. Here's your obligations. You are required to be faithful. Listen to what he says now. I care very little if I am judged by you. Or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. It's kind of a wild statement here. He goes from saying, Man, I walk around and I hear it all, 
I hear the accusations. I hear how I'm not, how I'm not measuring up. All of you guys are telling me I'm not measuring up. All the Corinthians are telling me you're terrible. You shouldn't be an apostle, da, 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 da. I hear my own voice saying, you're no good, you're no good. And at the end of the day, what does Paul say? I care very little what you have to say to judge me. In fact, I care very little what this has to say to judge me. My conscience is clear. What? Excuse me? (laughs) How do you get there? You remember, like, required to be faithful, all these laws, all these expectations to be godly and holy, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. What do you mean your conscience is clear? You call yourself the chief of sinners, Paul. My conscience is clear. That does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. How can he say that? Well, here's how. Jesus comes along in the days before Paul, and he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. We're going through this in our sermon series right now. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus, when Jesus came into the world, he didn't look at all the laws and all the ways that you're supposed to be faithful and sit and go, you know what? Like, let your freak flag fly. It's all good. I'm here. You don't need to change. I love you just the way you are. You're perfect. You're the model dad. You're the model husband. You're the model employer. You're the model everything. You're great. And I'm just here as like the cherry on top. And I'm going to die for the sins you didn't commit. Um, No, that's not what he comes for. He comes and says, hey, you know all those requirements that you're to be faithful? Still there. You know everybody around you that says you don't measure up? They're yelling still. Your heart is accusing you, but here's the deal. I didn't come to get rid of those requirements. I came to let you know that I see you. You will never, ever meet those requirements. You can't. But I've come to fulfill them for you. I am coming to live as God this perfectly righteous life to do everything right where everyone before me had failed. I'm coming to fulfill the life of Abraham. I'm coming to fulfill the life of Isaac and Jacob and all the ways that they fell short. I'm going to perfect them. And here's what I'm going to do with that perfection. I'm going to go to a cross. And you know, the only judge that matters in the universe, my father, the one who holds your soul Eternal fate in his hands? Yeah, that one? I'm going to let him pour his verdict on me. And I'm going to give you my righteousness. And so what does that do? It, it turns Pinocchio into the boy. It, it, it makes the sleeping woman wake up and be raised to new life, but this is what it also does. It looks at you and says, no, 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 no. I know all the mess about you. I know all the reasons why you're ashamed. I know all the ways why you feel that you don't measure up. And here's the deal. When I look at you, I sing over you with rejoicing. You are clothed in the perfect righteousness of my son. You have no need for shame anymore. Drop it. The verdict is in. You are righteous in my eyes because of what my son has done for you. He has fulfilled it for you at great, great cost. You know, there's this story of Abraham 
All the first five books of the Bible are called the law. And it's not just the code. When we think of law, we think statute 347.2. Now, the Old Testament, those first five books, even the stories are to be considered the law. So they give us examples that we then take and we go, well, that's not good. So we shouldn't do that. And here's one of them. Abraham is searching for food. He goes down to Egypt and when he gets to Egypt, you know what he says? He, he knows his wife is attractive. He knows Pharaoh or Pharaoh's officials are going to want her, and they'll kill him to have her so that she doesn't have a husband. So he goes down. You know what he says? Go into Pharaoh's harem. I don't care what really happens to you, but just say, you're my sister and not my bride. Don't tell them that you're my wife. And sure enough, Pharaoh's like, ooh, I to, she's, she's pretty. I'll take Sarah into my harem. And you read that, and you're like, What kind of holy book is this? You know what that's to make you long for? You read that story. Everybody who's ever read that story in history looks at that and thinks, what in the world? Like Abraham, you'd imagine that he's in heaven going, everybody I ever meet is going to know that story. That story is to make you long for something, right? It's to make you long for the one who's going to fulfill it. One who's going to come along and say, I'm willing to die for my bride. Who's the bride of Jesus? You are. Kind of a weird thing at a men's group, but you are. The church is. He comes to you and says, I love you so much and all of your faults and all of your mess that I'm willing to lay down my life to make sure that you're not taken captive. And so you know what happens when Abraham gets into heaven? The Bible says there's this great exchange, right? That on the cross, Jesus gives you his righteousness so that, and he takes your sin. And so here's like to personalize this. When Abraham shows up to heaven and when he catches eyes with God, do you know what happens? God, God's not stupid, but justified legally. When Abraham shows up in front of God, God sees Abraham not for what Abraham has done. God doesn't look at Abraham and go, You're the one who bailed on your wife. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He looks at Abraham and sees what Jesus did. You're the one who died for your bride. You are so perfect and precious. Come in. You know, a kid, a child, can take cues from a father. My my kids know immediately if I'm thrilled and proud of them, right? Just by the way I look at them. And they know when, when there's reason to be ashamed. Because of what Christ has done, guys, you have the promise that you are going to be rescued. You're going to be transformed. All the old Disney movies, all that comes true. It's the ultimate true fairy tale. But then this hunger that this modern generation that we have that, you know, I shouldn't be ashamed. I want to be known. I want to be loved. He knows everything about you. Your heart will never stop judging you. This world will never stop judging you. The gospel is the only remedy that comes to you and says the ultimate judge, the ultimate verdict, the one that's ultimately on high, behind the bench, the only one whose opinion ultimately matters looks at you and says, you are perfectly righteous. And there will come a day when shame is a distant memory for you. And you will be known and loved and embraced with no more tears, death, dying, pain, struggle ever again. But here's, here's the reality. 
those deep longings and the human heart that we vacillate between, it's all satisfied in him. The gospel is the only antidote to what we suffer. Otherwise, this will never stop shouting at us. And whatever we do will never be enough. And we know it. So grab hold of him. Let him love you. You know, this, this Christianity business isn't just about law and shame and doing the right thing. No, it's about a God who looks at you, sees all the worst, knows all the worst, and sees you as so incredibly valuable that he would stop at nothing, not even death itself, to make sure that you're redeemed and transformed and loved and that your shame is wiped away forever. That is what the gospel offers. That is amazing. And when we walk that as men, we're free to love others and to walk in freedom and to let go of the cinder blocks that bear us down. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your love, Lord, for the freedom that you give. We look at this and it's, it's, it's such an incredible offer, Lord, that the God of the universe sees us as valuable enough that he would trade places that you would take the condemnation so that we could have the freedom, that you would vow to transform us and allow us to leave our mess behind. And Father, I pray that we would be able to walk in the freedom of knowing that, that it's not about how hard we try. We'll never measure up. But because of what you've done, we already measure up in the only eyes that matter eternally. Allow us to walk in that freedom, Lord. I pray that if there are any... Anybody in here that's walking through shame, struggle, that they wouldn't do it alone, that they would seek out friends to to help carry those burdens, and ultimately, Lord, that they would come to lay them at your feet and allow you to just love them where they're at. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Sam. And thank you, friends, for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, please give us a good rating. That will help others find the podcast also. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.